In the short term, the world seems to be focused on the debt ceiling talks in the United States, whether it will be raised or not, and what that could mean for multiple asset classes. Of course, here, we want to talk about what that could mean for Bitcoin. But with the three guests that we have today, I have Charles and Chuck from S&P and James Sicklin from Elwood. We have three absolute beasts in the world of institutional adoption in crypto. So inevitably, that's where the conversation is going to head because these guys are on the front lines of institutional adoption every single day. You guys don't want to miss this conversation. And I'm going to go ahead and just bring the guests on right now. I've got Charles Jansen. Charles, this is now your third time here, I think. And Chuck, your second. The, the three of us actually met uh, at was it Mainnet in New York City, right? And, uh, and we would be bringing on James, but he's having a uh, spinning pinwheel camera situation. So we're just going to go ahead and assume that he's going to make his way into here. Now, I think both of you are likely at the Bitcoin conference in, in Miami, right? And that's really starting today. So have you had a chance, either of you, to head over there for the uh, any of the pre-events or, or seen what's going on? Not yet. Um, we're heading, as soon as we're done here, we're heading over there to spend the rest of the day and have a full day and evening of activities lined up. I'm sure. And so what is your focus being there? You guys obviously work at S&P Global. What are you looking to accomplish when you actually go to a conference like this? Because I met you guys at one, obviously. So I, you know, there's, there's a few, uh, kind of levels of that. So at, at the one level, it's really about kind of just being in the ecosystem and making connections and learning. Um, and the first day we found last year, the first day of the conference was particularly helpful because there's a lot of other institutional players um, in, in the arena. Um, and so that's always super useful for us. Um, and it's it's really about connecting with the, particularly around the institutional players and understanding what some of our traditional clients are doing in the space and what they're looking at um, around Bitcoin. Um, and then seeing what, new capabilities are evolving in the ecosystem and making sure we get connected at the right level with the kind of with the different protocols and different kind of market participants we see at, at the conference. Charles, is there anything you want to add to that? No, it's really this. It's networking. Everybody there, you got the, sometimes I think probably some regulator, we got senators, you got the Congress. So it's, it's super relevant to be there. Yeah. And when we met uh, in October, Charles, we've spoken since, but we had been in the bits of a crypto winter with quite a bit of contagion and problems, but we had not gotten FTXed yet. Um, so, so now, you know, having this conversation roughly six months later, how much of your outlook has changed? Has it shaken your confidence in any way, shape or form? Are you seeing less institutions interested in the space? Are they holding off and seeing what happens next? What's the general vibe with the institutions you've been speaking to? I can take a first cut on that. So um, there've been a lot of questioning around, you know, FTX and, and what it meant and what happened, et cetera. Uh, overall, I think everybody understood it was just fraud and it doesn't really have anything to do with, with Bitcoin or DeFi. And uh, we spoke with many other institutions. They kind of have the, the same answer, like, well, a lot of sessions to explain what happened, what it is, because the big difference with Terra Luna for instance, and FTX is that FTX really made the news, right? So everybody heard of, of FTX. And so, so you had to really explain what happened, but overall, uh, I think for us and also several institutions we spoke with, um, the, the, the sponsorship is still there, maybe even stronger than before. 
and everybody sees that well this, this is happening tokenization of everything etc and there's a lot of of, of push overall to to just be part of that and and, and participate Chuck, yeah. yeah so i would say that uh following the ftx kind of failure um we did have to shift gears for a period of time to kind of do internal explaining or explanations of what it means and you know for us as a rating agency like look we're we are well versed in the the history of uh, kind of financial failures um and this one was straight out of the books it was a combination of fraud uh poor risk management uh mismatch asset liabilities this is an old-fashioned failure um and really had nothing to do with the the developments um, in decentralized finance or Bitcoin or digital assets, other than the fact that FTX was involved in those marketplaces, but the failures of the company are old fashioned, uh, kind of happened a million times, uh, and so we just had to spend some time explaining that internally. But it was well understood and kind of resonated with the with the internal audience, and certainly from our engagement with stakeholders and the traditional stakeholders in the ecosystem. Uh, what we found is those that were already advanced in their journey and kind of building capabilities and understanding, they were unfazed, but kind of facing the same challenges we're facing of like some internal explanations, but uh, not changing their course or not um, kind of not, it's not, wasn't causing like a major hiccup. For institutions though, that were just getting started in their journey, it was a little bit more of a headwind, I think. Um, and maybe has delayed things a bit more because they hadn't done the initial legwork to really understand the ecosystem or the capability sets. And so they, they had, a, I think, a, I think it had more impact for institutional players that were just entering the space. Yeah. I mean, that's specific to FTX and obviously explaining it internally, as you said, but the bigger issue perhaps is the way that regulators have now approached the space as a result of FTX. So. Are there huge question marks now for institutions as to whether what they're doing is even legal compliance, whether, you know, there's going to be new laws passed that might impact their businesses. I would imagine that would keep a lot more people on the sidelines, even than the false sort of equivalency with FTX and what they did. Yeah, we think that policy formation is one of the most important uh, developments and one of the biggest barriers to institutional adoption that's in the marketplace. Uh, so you've got a lot of traditional players who have been investing significant financial and human capital to build capabilities. But until you get more clarity around the, the regulatory landscape or the policy formation around that, um, it's difficult to kind of get the mass adoption that we believe is going to ultimately come. But you're going to have to have some policy frameworks in place first. So I think that uh, the failures or the challenges that we've seen uh, in this last year are going to help catalyze those policy responses. Some jurisdictions are already, you know, quite far ahead. Whether you look at uh, the EU with Mika, or you look in the you know, certain jurisdictions, whether it's uh, you know Switzerland or Singapore or Luxembourg or France, that there are advancements on the policy formation side. I think the U.S. is is a bit behind uh, in the policy formation angle, and that in part reflects our regulatory structure. Like we don't have one central regulator. We have a multitude of regulators, of financial sector regulators. And I think that 
compounds and makes um, our regulatory framework and policy formation framework more complex and more difficult. I mean, Charles, do you have anything to add there? I think it's very clearly more difficult here, but I think there's another side, which is that there's just sort of egg on the face of a lot of legislators and regulators as a result of FTX, and they just don't want to talk about it, right? It's important to us, and they kind of want to just uh, kick the can down the road and have that conversation further into the future. I mean, I very, very highly unlikely, in my opinion, that Congress gets together and comes up with any sort of crypto-based legislation anytime soon, in my mind. Yeah, so one of the things we we were hoping maybe last time we spoke was that there would be some type of stablecoin le legislation, bipartisan, that would be done by the end of last year or this year. Uh, but like, you know, going back to the title of this of this podcast, now with the US debt ceiling inside, it's it's less likely we'll we'll get there. Uh I, I think there is more chance that other jurisdictions so Mika was passed in Europe. So this is this is done. Uh, the, the FCA is, is working hard to, to get something set up also. So it's it's probably going to take more time in the U.S. and come as a reaction to what will have been done in, in other countries, which are really leading right now. And, and as Chuck was mentioning, the, the U.S. is slightly behind or not. But, you know, I did see that... Um... There's a, a new draft of stablecoin legislation put out in the House in the last couple of days. Uh, and I was just trying to start to read that this morning. But I do think that Congressman McHenry is very focused um, on this aspect. And although I think there has been some slowdown in, in, the, in the progress towards a kind of bipartisan approach to stablecoin legislation, we still think that's likely going to be the first piece of major legislation, um, and that it, it, it even if it's slowed down, it still seems to be moving forward. So, you know, I'm I'm hopeful uh, that Congress uh, can can get get it done this year. But for the reasons you just said, I I think it's it's less likely now we think than than what we thought even just a couple of months ago. Yeah, I mean, that's the low-hanging fruit. There's no question. I think that uh, stable coins are in a position where almost everybody could come together and just come up with some very, very basic and sensible rules. We also have been told that Lummis Gillibrand bill will be reintroduced in the coming month or two. Again, just because it's reintroduced, it's been almost a year we've seen no movement on it. So I, I don't think that means anything will actually happen. But it is encouraging, I guess, that there are at least some Congress people and senators that still have this high in their docket major priority and are pushing for it. Just getting the other ones on board, I think that is the major challenge. Can we talk a bit about Mika? Has that in any way affected your business? Are you working with institutions in Europe who now see that as a green light and a way to operate moving forward? Yeah, I'm no, happy to touch on that. So, well, it's a good development for the field in general, just because many player cannot play if you don't have rules of the game. And then you might like the rule or dislike the rules, but once the rules are, are, are set up, then they can just participate and they know with the framework to do it, etc. Uh, well, uh, and more or less in the same time is an institution like uh, Société Générale, SG Forge, launching their own stable coin. Uh, so, well, the, the you know the framework really help when you know exactly what are, what are the rules they can you can have. Uh, systemic banks launching stablecoin, which was, I think, a very big development. And uh, in, in Europe, we had some of the banks launching stablecoin before. You had banks in, in Australia doing it. 
but but not to the scale of uh, of uh, a bank like like, like Sogen. Overall, uh, I think it's going to help Europe to take the lead in in the field. So the Dubai is really very advanced, Singapore also, but that's um, that's something that I think will also help the UK. They'll probably get inspired by what has been done. And, and yeah, it just confirms the lead. But overall, it's, it's welcome in the institution. Like everybody wants to have clear rules of the game to be able to participate. I had no idea that this stable coin existed. Uh, oh, so it's called the General Force. No, and then I look, Coinvertible was launched on April 20th, 2023. I would like to say I Googled things, but now I've barred them while you guys are talking. I, you know, I, I asked <laughs> the AI and it gave me a great answer. That was, comp- I'm, I think I'm pretty on top of the news and I completely missed that a month ago. Yeah, so that was a that was a huge uh, a huge development. So it's made public that a PR etc. And again, like it's your back stable coin done by a systemic bank. Uh, it it's it's a very very big development. So I didn't follow the, the news in detail. I well I I knew about that. I saw the PR etc. Uh, I don't know if it was taken in the in the Coin Telegraph and Coin Desk and they probably have. I think yes, there should have been way more noise on on Twitter and around around it, but because it's really institution focused, it's not a stable coin like you would say USDC, right? It's not something anybody can access to. All the stable coin issued by bank will have KYC and AML, etc. So they're permissioned. But was it what is interesting with all of those is how they are permission on top of public chain. And as far as I know, what came come to mind right now, all the other banks that did that did it the same way. So it's always on top of Ethereum, sometimes with another ledger on the side, and you do the KYCML, then you will basically be well a client. You just interact with them, uh, and well, you can use the the, the stablecoin there. I'm just speaking out loud. They could be just using exchanges. Or in different places where the exchange is actually the one doing the KYC, etc. With them, we'll do. We'll see what they do. But that's you know come with a different set of 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 risk compared to something like USDT, where you know it's a full black box, and now you got an alternative or several alternatives done by different banks. So we'll see how it it take off. But that's it's a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah, this is really interesting. I have the article here. I pulled it up from a month ago just so that people can see it. Obviously, full KYC, AML, as you said, it's effectively a private stablecoin for institutional investors, right? You said that you can't use it as an individual. Is this what we're going to see in the future is sort of these sandboxed stablecoins that are used for a specific person but aren't available to everyone? Because this is really interesting. It is a huge bank, obviously, launching their own stablecoin. While in the United States, we talk about Circle or companies like that trying to become banks so that they can be compliant. It's almost an approach from two opposite directions. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that um, you kind of have to look at it. It's it's not when I look at the mark the the space of kind of cash like applications on crypto rails. You know, so there's there's a number of products. So you, at one extreme, you have a CBDC, then you have stable coins, then you can have private company stable coins or bank issue stable coins, and then you have tokenized deposits. Uh, so they all kind of fit together in a spectrum. And I think it's unclear, you know, like it's it's such early days, it's hard to imagine or hard to know how those different component parts are going to play out. 
um, kind of relative to each other. And part of that will be shaped by the regulatory and policy formation that is in, in the process of evolving right now. But certainly, I think there is going to be a place for uh, bank-issued uh, stable coins to facilitate transactions and financing credit intermediation kind of within their network or in the future state, uh, a, a, you know, on a public blockchain and in an interoperable way across the, the, the landscape. And one of the interesting comments we heard from one of the uh, banks that we've spoken to was the, the reason that they are looking at uh, launching their own stablecoin is when they engage with their kind of client side, it became clear to them or they had the thought that if they, they, they run the risk of becoming irrelevant if they don't kind of build a stablecoin and build up this piece of their business. And that was a really interesting comment coming from a traditional bank player. Um, it's something you don't hear all that often uh, in the TradFi circles. Um, but I think the direction of travel is very clear here. And we've got a handful of bank issue stable coins now, and I think we can expect to see many more. As and I've just, just can you go ahead, Charles. Sorry. Just on, on, on your initial question on, on, you know, permission thing on top of public chain, that's really developing now, not just for the stable coin, but even for the DeFi pool. There's a lot of very interesting DeFi pools that are being created where well, you'll have KYC and AML. Well, everything Centrifuge is doing, I always have. KYC ML, I think Maple got different thing like that also, Clearpool, etc. But that's really what is being developed right now. KYC ML pool of money that allows to invest in real world asset. That's actually one of the part of the market we're, we're the most interested in, the, the financing and the tokenization of real world asset. Uh, but it's probably going to be an, a hybrid for a while, I, I don't think. I don't know if it will remain like that. But right now, with a lack of uh, you know, regulation, transparency, and and, and international regulation, etc. It's it's a good way to get stuff started in a way that could take off. And what is really interesting is instead of doing it the 2000 maybe 16 way, which would have been similar but everything on private chain, you set up everything on public chain, preparing for the interoperability that everybody knows is needed. And when you look at what Project Guardian is is um, doing like a project guardian in Singapore with JP Morgan, Temasek, etc. The requirement to be to have interoperability and hence be on a on a public chain came from the regulator, from the Monetary Authority of Singapore. So you got different calls a bit everywhere on we need the interoperability, we need to avoid fractioning the liquidity of the market. Uh, so let's just be on public chain, and for now let's just permission it. Right, I saw that that's built on on Ethereum, which I think is not 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 entirely unexpected at this point. Right, it seems like they capture most of the market share for things like this. So, can you guys give me sort of an update as to specifically, since now it, uh, James wasn't able to fix his tech, we can just talk about SMP. What at this point is your the two of you, your team? What is your mandate? What are you building there? I know a lot of it had to do with indexing and sort of mimicking the products and, and services that we have in other financial markets that just are completely lacking. Is that still the direction? Have you sort of changed course? What else are you guys working on? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say we've changed course. The The mission still main, remains the same, which is to help the organization develop and execute a strategy and that allows us to evolve our existing products and services and create a new generation of products and services that are fit for purpose in decentralized markets. 
uh, and crypto finance. So what has changed since we spoke to you is uh, we've added to our team now. Uh, so we've just undertaken several new hires uh, to help build out um, kind of the, those, uh, that capability set within the organization. And we're in the process of um, putting together kind of a proposal of a, like a strategic build and evaluating uh, what would a bigger strategic build at the organization I think we lost uh, chat froze there from I can take over. So yeah, we're looking at this uh, strategic build to look at what could be a bigger kind um, of involvement. So we've got a you know a few things kind of moving. Check. Um, I'm not sure. Am I still on? Yeah, you we you we had a gap there, and you're 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 frozen. I think it's at uh, Miami Hotel Internet. I've struggled with this many times, but uh, okay, Chuck, I think you're back. So we lost about the last thirty seconds of what we'll we lost you on the strategic part. Yeah, so we're just kind of building um, a kind of a strategic use case, L building a strategic plan that involves use cases, looking at different divisions, whether it's indices or ratings or commodities business or data and analytics um, and or mobility business and seeing how that may be, how we may be able to apply that kind of in the organization um, more broadly. In the ratings business, as Charles just said, we're really focused on the, the, the idea of the tokenization of everything and bringing real-world assets on chain and the new credit intermediation system that is going that is being set up on decentralized rails. So that's really exciting to us. And that could be anything from uh, tokenized bond issuance to tokenization of equities or private private credit, private lending, uh, real estate, just, just any kind of asset you can think of, uh, both tangible and intangible. And thinking about what kind of role we can play as a benchmark provider, data, a data and analytic company to facilitate that migration to the future state of credit intermediation markets. And there's one more thing. I don't know if you saw that news, Scott. Uh, we did an investment. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw it in Credora. So it's uh, the the first uh, investment we did from from rating on uh, something that touched really DeFi a lot. We had another investment in, in Luca that came from the index side, but here it's Credora. So Credora is um, kind of like a credit risk, credit risk rating agency of DeFi, but it's really interesting the way they work real time and they maintain privacy in the way they look at uh, at the data. So basically, you can connect to Credora. They'll be they have something like zero knowledge to just look at uh, your portfolio. They do not see it but they can see the agglomerate, like how much you have in short, how much you have in long, and, and then they, they do different credit score around that. So that's that was a pretty big thing of the last few months for us. Yeah, that's extremely cool. I, I had Sid Powell on from Maple Finance last week. I'm sure, Charles, that you're aware of them and they're doing quite a bit. You're both nodding your head, which is, which is cool and encouraging because they've taken a really novel approach to sort of this tokenization, or at least creating credit markets, I guess, out of these without actually tokenizing the asset, I think is the way that they're doing it. But uh, a lot of novel approaches to that. I mean, do you think that we get to a point where effectively you can tokenize or, or at least collateralize almost anything with blockchain technology? Yeah, I think that's, uh, like to, to me, the, the tokenization part seems to be like the easier part are a kind of it's interesting and it's super important, but what's even more interesting to me is the creation of the entire 
systemic ecosystem and set of rails beyond that tokenization will help power. Um, and so it's that end-to-end -end, uh, market functioning capability that tokenization is a foundational layer of, but it doesn't stop at tokenization, right? It, it kind of goes, it will permeate across the entire um, kind of creation of new uh, capital pools and the utilization of those capital pools from new, from a broader and democratized audience. Uh, so to me, that's what's so exciting and like having tokenized uh, real world assets bringing and bringing that real world asset to create real world income on chain is going to be um, kind of the shape of the future. Do you want to touch on the BCG report, Chuck? And like the... Yeah, so, and you, you may have seen this or your audience may have seen this as well. So Boston Consulting Group, which is one of the major uh, consulting agencies, um, came out with an estimate, I, I guess about a couple of months ago, saying that uh, their view that the tokenized, the size of the tokenized illiquid asset market will grow to, uh, to a minimum of $16 trillion uh, by 2030 and up to $68 trillion by 2030. So, you know, that's, we're talking like, you know, six and a half years or so, um, and talking about a market sizing that goes up to almost $70 trillion. Um, I mean, I've been, we've been, I've been in markets a long time. Uh, you don't see that kind of growth in a market structure, um, <laughs> maybe once in a lifetime. Uh, so that's, that's super exciting. And what, one of the really in interesting aspects of that report was their estimates of the size of the tokenized illiquid asset market uh, was based on their analysis of the client demand. It's not talking about the total addressable market, which of course can be hundreds of trillions of dollars. This is what they're estimating and what they're capturing is what they estimate the client demand for those assets will be. So that's also super interesting to see that uh, their expectation of this mass adoption uh, from clients in this uh, segment of the market. Really interesting. I, I think that uh, this is one of the narratives that's just sort of been lost in the crypto winter, right? Everyone was really excited about the idea of tokenizing assets and then price went down and people started panicking about price. <laughs> right. And now people, I mean, we have to talk about it. People are panicking about the debt ceiling now. I know that that has nothing to do necessarily with S&P, but do you guys have a feeling on what the likelihood that that uh, gets resolved is because we talk about other topics here, you know, um, and what that would mean for for Bitcoin in either in either way. I think they'll resolve it. By the way, and we're watching a big dog and pony show, and we've done it seventy eight times, and they'll do it a seventy ninth time, and yeah, political theater. But hey, there you go. <laughs> well, I, I don't think uh, that uh, I, I'm I'm not going to comment on uh, the likelihood of it getting resolved, but your point is well taken. Uh, that uh, it's, this isn't the first time kind of we've been in this cycle. Um, and so, you know, although you always say in finance, you know, history is no judge of what the future is going to be, but it is what it is. Uh, as far as uh, the kind of the focus on what it means for crypto and Bitcoin, I think it is actually very interesting to see. In the last year, you've had a couple of developments. One is the emergence of a systemic banking crisis um, that it would include, you know, Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, and then the pressures with First Republic. You know, this is the first time you're seeing the emergence of a systemic banking crisis in the age of Bitcoin and in the age of cryptocurrency. 
Um, and so thinking about the ramifications of what that means for the market is still, this is going to be kind of a, a body of thought and analysis that's, that's ongoing and is just emerging. It's the same thing around the debt ceiling, in, in my opinion. Like this is the first time we're really seeing this, this kind of pressure point around a debt, you know, uh, cataclysm or catastrophe. Um, if it were to kind of go down that path in the age of crypto and, and what does that mean? I think that this is going to be an example where, um, people now have an option to really look at Bitcoin as an alternative and think, well, I, I think it's going to kind of sh shine Bitcoin in a positive light against this kind of centralized financial system, um, kind of stress that we're seeing. And, and, and this is, but this is a kind of a new development. And I think the, the, the pathways that are being established and Bitcoin as an example of an ulterior pathway are just going to get more and more cemented um, in, in kind of the, the mass economy and the real economy as this story unfolds. Charles, what do you think? Uh, I agree. Um, I, I, you might remember when, when we spoke last time at mainnet, I mentioned the fact that, you know, in Argentina, people are not really looking at Bitcoin. Bitcoin is still an investment, right? You buy Bitcoin because you hope it's going up. You're not really buy Bitcoin because you just hope the value will remain the same in, you know, the amount of banana you can buy or something like that. Um, so right now, again, like for the debt ceiling, of course, there was, you know, a huge, uh, mistake being done there, it's hard to, to realize the size of it. But if we touch more on the, you know, the big rhetoric there is right now on the dominance of the US dollar, the US dollar as, um, as a reserve currency. I don't see, and I'm not really an expert in that, but like from my seat, I don't really see an alternative to the US dollar yet. You know, when we speak of the, the RAN or when we speak of BRICS uh, setting up uh, something kind of like Gaddafi wanted to do with with gold and etc. Uh, I, I lived in, in, in different countries uh, that have pretty bad economy. The risk of, you know, having a token based on something they sold, like they say gold, and it's you'll have, uh, you know, country like Brazil, etc., holding it for you. The, the, the real risk is, you know, the collateral disappear. Let's say if Venezuela was doing it, who really trust that the goal is still there, right? So, so it's it's there's a lot of trust in something like what they want to to create, and I would not buy it. Now, yes, there's Bitcoin as uh, as an alternative investment. I personally personally think that there've been a lot of changes in uh in just in in the crypto world since we spoke and one of them is just the fact that now you have ethereum which is deflationary has a use case i mean you can hate ethereum but if they're going to trigger the mapsies here now sound money if you really want to get them yeah <laughs> <laughs> over sound money for, uh, follow me on, on Twitter so you can attack me really hard on what I just said. But uh, but the point is this, right? I'm, I'm not against Bitcoin. I'm not uh, for any, you know, Solana or, or anything like that. I'm just thinking, you know, 21 million is great. It's much better than, you know, printing and printing and printing. Now, if it was decaying for 21 million, well, it's it's actually slightly better. Now, if you really don't like Bitcoin, but somehow you would be used to buy it or have somebody buy it for you to actually do something. Well, that's what's happening 
with Ethereum, right? We mentioned convertible, we mentioned a lot of stuff being built on top of Ethereum. Well, for transaction to be done there, there is a fee in gas, and that's what push both the utility and, and, and the burn. So uh, I, I'm actually wondering if most of, uh, I'm interested to have your opinion on that too, because well, of your relationship with the Bitcoin Maxi, et cetera, but most or many of the use cases or the big difference of Bitcoin are actually better phrased for Ethereum right now, just because of the utility, the, the, the lack of a cap. Before we started with 60 million ETH, we went to 120 million ETH. It was a printing nightmare, but now everything changed. So, yeah. I think they'll tell you that the, it's more about the consensus mechanism and proof of work versus proof of stake and security and that it's a copy of Bitcoin. I don't ascribe necessarily to any of it. I don't really care. I think Bitcoin is a unique asset, but I think what's more interesting if we're talking about the ETH versus Bitcoin debate is that now Bitcoiners are effectively trying to build everything that's on ETH on top of Bitcoin, right? Whether it's through Lightning stacks or all the ERC20 and ordinals, I mean, directly on it, it's not going that great for the Bitcoin blockchain if you want to actually use it uh, in a cheaper or quick manner. But it almost seems like they're viewing and not, I can't even say they, because there's obviously division within the Bitcoin community as to whether they should be doing any of this. But effectively, it makes Ethereum look like a test net for ideas that they want to build on Bitcoin, which I just find the irony of it uh, really, really interesting. I, I just think I, I'm you guys are actually there. I didn't go to Miami this year. It's the first one that I've missed. But I think you're going to have a much better answer to that question in three days from now than I do, because I think that's going to be the core conversation in the back halls and even on stage as to sort of the approach of Ethereum versus Bitcoin and all the things that are being built. So I'd actually be interested to ask you uh, after this week, I mean, what do you think of all of this BRC20 ordinals things? Do you think that it's necessary to build these things on Bitcoin if they already exist on Ethereum? Uh, um, so just opinion on my own. I prefer Bitcoin as what it was. Like if, if on the Bitcoin side, I would be more on the maxi angle on you know let's have one utility and we really continue to be the best yes censorship resistance uh bitcoin is king with proof of work there's all the issues with electricity but aside from that security bitcoin is king um now trying to bring it's also the way it's done right right now you're you're just filling a lot of data in the blockchain uh, i had some conversations that were interesting with some bank people that you know just uh conversation and, and there was a thing no but look with you know Audino and Bitcoin Nights were better because you have the actual NFTs the actual picture can be on the blockchain I, I don't think it really matters I think you know like let's say your house the deed of your house is in the ledger the house is not inside it and it, and it works you just have human agreeing that this book where there is the deeds of the house represent ownership uh, it could be the same for you know participation in a club or just a picture it doesn't really matter where, where it's stored so I, I think it's kind of dangerous for bitcoin just the amount of data we're putting in it was not really made for that and uh well if it just disrupts the main use case and it become worse and worse to transact on bitcoin it could really works against it um we'll see how you know lightning scale zeus and how it works but yeah i'm not amazed by that. Chuck, do you have a feeling on it? 
Uh, so I would actually have probably the opposite view as Charles. Nice. Now, fine. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and become toxic maxis. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so I guess we probably reflect the, your broader audience too, the diversion of views. And uh, Charles, you know, in our, in our team, I'm the TradFi guy. Charles is a crypto native. So, you know, we often come at the exact same thing from a completely different perspective. So from my point of view, I, I get the security issue and the, to the extent that any kind of build out or kind of expansion of use cases undermines or kind of puts at risk or changes the security dynamic, that's a, a real issue and would be a concern uh, and a real detriment. But kind of as, as far as building um, use cases and expand and, and, and innovation around kind of the network and capabilities, why wouldn't you want that? Like, I, I think that, uh, you know, coming from a TradFi background, the whole space is marked by innovation. So I, I it seems kind of uh, an, an, an anomaly to me that the the first, the leading uh, digital asset cryptocurrency wouldn't be also leading the way uh, or innovating it kind of along the way as well. Uh, so that would be kind of my initial take on that. I think maybe the market will decide, right? So I don't think there's an issue with uh, attempting it if it's actually adopted. And uh, I just think uh, a lot of people are having a problem, obviously, with the speed and fees at this point. I can even see people talking about it in the comments, but that should just push adoption or development of layer twos, right? I mean, this is, if ever there was a time for lightning to shine and to actually start gaining usage and to start getting market share, this would be it. But interestingly, I mean, speaking of Bitcoin and narrative, since we're somewhat on the topic, we did see this huge Bitcoin move up as banks started to fail. So, I mean, we could debate whether that was crypto natives moving into Bitcoin or whether there was actually any outside, but you're probably hearing about that narrative, I would imagine, where you are. Is that, is that a conversation that you're having with institutions, people? Are there those that are actually saying, hey, maybe I need to buy this if banks are potentially failing. I need somewhere to put my money. Or is that just yet another echo chamber narrative that we love to talk about here? Yeah, we don't really discuss price or anything like that with with our customers. It's all about use cases, what could be disrupted uh, in our business, in their business, what could we disrupt? So, so it's more on, on, on this angle. Then personal conversation, sure there might be. In my opinion, there's a risk. Just the macro is really, really bad in general. Right? You got a, a war in Ukraine. You got a lot of tension with China and Taiwan. You got banks uh, that are falling, etc. You got the commercial real estate that seems to have a lot of issue. The, it, it really feels like we're not out of the of the issue at all, and it might increase and it might be a snowball, and Historically, what we've seen is that when people are selling risky assets, they just sell everything, right? So it, it's possible if we had, you know, another big crash, COVID-like, but probably a bit longer, that big institution that hold a lot of things would just sell all their risky assets together. Uh, I, I kind of have this feeling, more looking at the curve of, you know, maybe altcoins and, and Ethereum, et cetera, that we, it looks a lot like 2019. And it's just what is a real breakthrough that can push everything up, right? So the halving is next year. Uh, the L2s, they're there, but they're kind of missing some part. The ZK polygon could be really interesting, but it's not really there yet. 
uh, GameFi is interesting. It's not really there yet. So we don't really have this huge, well, regulation could be coming and be a catalyst, but it's not fully there yet. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of, you know, more thinking sell in May and walk away. And uh, <laughs> sell in April and, and uh, skip May, I think, would have been the move if, if we could have gotten out of, uh, you know, the 31,000. It does feel like we're going to have another one of those just absolutely boring summers that we tend to see in this market and that we're just waiting a year from the having for anything major to happen. But you did t touch on a few of these use cases, and I think that those things, GameFi, all of those will be built during this time. I think they when are. we get past the halving, we're going to see this absolute explosion of things people weren't paying attention to that were built over the last two years. Yep. Hey, yep. Scott, can I also kind of kind of following up to your question? So Thanks. in our conversations, uh, we don't really, I wouldn't say there's a clear movement from institutional players say, oh, I've got to get kind of exposure to this because to Bitcoin or digital assets because of the, the strains in the traditional financial system. That the ability for TradFi players to come in and move markets at that scale, I don't think has materialized yet. It is going, in my opinion, it is going to materialize, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, so that's still on the come. But what, what is interesting to me is looking at the Silicon Valley Bank and the speed at which the, the deposit flight out of that organization happened. Um, and you know, my understanding is it's the first time ever that a bank was um, kind of intervened by regulators during the workday. Um, and the reason for that was because of the speed at which deposits were fleeing. Um, and so I think that sets a kind of an important context that, you know, you've got um, kind of businesses and people kind of in real time seeing weakness in the organization and, and, and electronically acting immediately. And as they pull money, out of banks that are either failing in the process of failing or they're concerned are going to fail and looking for immediate alternatives, that's going to be a boost of supply and demand for Bitcoin um, in, in that audience set. So that's, to me, that's a kind of a macro big picture catalyst underneath the scene um, that kind of have supported the Bitcoin story in particular um, in the last few months. But the, the, the main story, the onboarding of, a mass onboarding with institutional players and the implications for market dynamics that hasn't really started in earnest yet. Um, and I think once we get some policy clarity and regulatory formation, um, I think you're going to see that starting to shift the dynamics uh, and the pricing mechanisms for digital assets, including Bitcoin. I think MicroStrategy will probably have a role also, like assuming they, you know, they, they go well and if they ease rising price there's probably a lot of ceos that will rethink the treasury and after seeing what you know how high it can go for for micro that time we lost you charles but i know you guys are in the same hotel so not to score <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're back, back. you're back oh, you i'm back you. okay i could see you sorry about that so yeah and no, i was saying uh, i think micro strategy could have an impact as an example uh, when you'll have, um, you know, Bitcoin potentially going back up on the next uh, cycle, whenever it is, uh, I think a lot of CEO will just probably look at their treasury and thinking if it makes sense to kind of diversify in and slightly depending the the, the time and call it and asset. 
I think MicroStrategy would be an interesting use case to many people and probably you know, have a business case at some point. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, I mean, before I let you guys go, are there any final thoughts, anything we didn't touch on that you want to let us know that's happening? I, I would say, honestly, with all of this, all of the problems that we've seen in this market, probably a good time to be at a large institution uh, and talking about crypto because I think there's just a general push away from, and I'm not saying for better or for worse for, for the audience, but I would say that uh, people are leery of sort of the more smaller crypto native companies. And we're now seeing sort of this narrative of the S&Ps and the JP Morgans and the Fidelities certainly and the Charles Schwab's starting to really make a lot more noise in the space. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, you've captured, I, I think what you just said is exactly right. And there's gonna be um, a combination of idiosyncratic and macro drivers that kind of push the kind of build out capabilities and ultimate adoption from traditional players. Uh, so on the idiosyncratic side, it's really around looking at uh, the technology capabilities and the development of new use cases. Uh, whether, and you see the development of new use cases everywhere um, in kind of all aspects of the market from Bitcoin specifically to Ethereum or other protocols and the kind of build out of credit intermediation capabilities. So that's happening at the tangible level. And on the macro level, you've got pretty significant dislocations happening in macro markets. Uh, so the drive, the, the rise in interest rates, the pressures that that's going to expose in credit markets and Charles mentioned one commercial real estate, you know, so there's kind of been an emergence of macro driven catalysts that will, um, I, I think in combination with the idiosyncratic drive, help drive and accelerate the adoption and traditional players into this ecosystem. Um, and the, um, the, the, the timing is really right because of the combination of those idiosyncratic and macro drivers that are at play right now. I think one last word will be around risk. So when we spoke last year, there was some interest in risk. Uh, it really kickstarted also after Terra Luna, but overall it was not, you know, the full main focus of, well, DeFi and crypto in general. Uh, it was more around, well, you know, give me that yield. I, I don't really care where it's coming from. Uh, now there's more and more like relevance in looking at risk and, and, and getting, getting it evaluated by a third party, even with what happened with SVB, right? When we suddenly had a debugging of USDC, which was not something that people were expecting, it, it just brings the need to have more and more evaluation. So, so well, we'll continue to push on that side. And, and well, we can also really see the, the interest that went up compared to a year ago. Well, have a great time at the uh, conference. I'm, I'm a little jealous. I chose not to go because I had some family things, but I'm a little jealous. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I said, we got to have a conversation afterwards. You can tell me all that you guys learned, whether uh, publicly or, or, or privately. <laughs> and I'm glad that we were able to uh, get through the hotel Wi-Fi, which is my biggest challenge every time I'm traveling. Yesterday, my Wi-Fi went out in my whole neighborhood for 10 hours, the last minute of the stream. And apparently my guests just chatted without me like six or seven <laughs> minutes before my producer turned the stream off. So if he hadn't have done that, I would have literally been live streaming for eight or nine straight hours yesterday, unable to turn it off. 
So we're 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 uh, pretty used to technical difficulties here. Not a surprise. But I'm looking forward to seeing continually what uh, comes out of SMP. You guys are great guests. I lo I love that you're participating uh, so deeply in this space, and hope that we can uh, kind of uh, realize this this vision together for everybody else. I will be back tomorrow doing the news. Last week, uh, I ranted like a crazy person. I'm going to probably do that again um, about all the all the news. Uh, we'll see what happens. And then uh, next week, we're going to be flipping up the schedule majorly, starting to do uh, daily Twitter spaces. So I would love to have both of you there uh, as well. I'm going to be doing that with Mario Knopfel and Rand Nooner. So we're going to do that probably at 10.30 a.m. right after the streams almost every day. So... My brain is going to be uh, scrambled eggs like that commercial from the 80s, but hey, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Chuck, Charles, 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 Chuck, Chuck. Thank you guys so much for joining. I'll see everybody else tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks Bye. for having us.